Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. And here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And welcome back to the show. It's good to be here. It, it is. I like that we're both drinking coffee because we're both back at our respective employment places yeah. or college places in your case. Or the same place. Which is, in fact, the same place, <laughs> but I don't see you. In fact, I go out of my way to avoid you. Same here. If at all possible. I'm sorry today. You ignored me. Did he? Yeah. I, I, how, how could you do that to your mum? Are you too cool? I didn't ignore her. I just didn't want my friends to see her. Why not? Ashley was going to say hello to me and he stopped her. Anyway, should we keep on topic? Mm-hmm. We're both drinking coffee this night because both of us are knackered. <laughs> this working for a living just no fun, is it? No. Not that you'd know. I've done nothing but work. And your new college course. Oh, my new college course. Did they, did they work you hard? They do. Excellent. You said earlier on you painted nudes on Monday or Tuesday? Or Tuesday. You are ready yes. for it to be a wrinkly old man, aren't you? Or woman. <laughs> but there's wrinkles. It, it won't be some svelte, Spartacus-esque woman. No, we've been told. It won't be Lucretia. Well, I don't think it would be. <laughs> anyway, should we do an email? I think we should do an email. Goddamn headband! That's the, the subject heading. It's from Chris Franklin. Hello, Leylands. Hello, Christopher. Wow, what a ride. The original Clone Saga sounds like quite the thrill ride, but I agree with Andy that it's not quite as epic as history paints it. I think it's the lack of time and development spent with the Gwen Peter clones. I know applying too much logic to a superhero comic isn't a good idea, but I think Michael is right to point out everyone seems oddly comfortable about the idea of Gwen being back from the dead. Wouldn't the police exhume her corpse to see if it was still there, or match dental records of Gwen? Someone was lying in that grave. If Gwen was up and running around, who was taking a dirt nap? That's a good question, that, isn't it? Mm. I don't think... But dirt nap. Yeah. Do you like that? Sounds like the Spider Clone actually got more action in the Night of the Clone episode of the 70s Spider-Man TV series. Spidey callously dumping his clone's body down a smokestack always kind of bothered me. I, I, thought, I think we did mention that one. I think we felt that that was a little bit out of character for him. Yeah. Let's just dump this body in here and hope it is never found. Yeah, that'll go well, Spidey. In the Jackal entry in the official handbook of the Marvel Universe Deluxe Edition, it too emphatically stated that Professor Warren harboured fatherly feelings for Gwen. They went out of their way to state this. Only a few years later you get Conway's revelation that Warren probably did icky things with Gwen's clone. And in fact, since he made a clone of Gwen, or made somebody else look like Gwen, why not take off with her and forget the whole revenge thing? See, Chris... This is where you're, you're, you're failing completely as a comics fan. You're applying intelligence to the clone saga. <laughs> I, I think we probably thought more about that story than Jerry Conway ever did. Probably. That's my thinking. And we weren't getting paid and for it. And we weren't getting paid for it, no. 
Speaking of icky things with Gwen's clones, I call for another retcon. Will someone at Marvel please state that Warren started making Gwen clones before her death so we can say the Gwen who slept with Norman Osborn was a clone? That'd be great, thanks. I wholeheartedly concur with that opinion. We can just forget that story ever. What story is he talking about? I don't know, I can't remember. I've Swiss cheesed. I feel like I've been retconned. <laughs> Which is quite a painful, I would imagine. <laughs> I've been retconned rather roughly up the behind. <laughs> Spectacular Spider-Man issue 29 was one of my first Spider-Man comics bought for me when I was barely four years old. Carrion scared the bejesus out of me. I was clueless about much of the clone saga until reading those Otmu entries. I love that abbreviation. I mentioned before, when the Gwen clone and Carrion returned in Spectacular under Conway, I was intrigued, but it is the worst kind of retconning. Why was it so hard to swallow Warren making clones on a university professor's salary, in a universe where Victor Von Du managed to make a device to contact the netherworld while a freshman, is beyond me. I still enjoyed your covering of the whole saga and all its myriad follow-ups leading to the 90s clone mess. Since I know you're not going to cover that, given it has its own show by other hands, may I make a suggestion? How about covering the Hobgoblin mystery? The saga of who was the Hobgoblin and who he was really supposed to be at different times is a fascinating one, full of retcons, office politics and backstabbing. I'd love to hear you guys talk about it. I'm sure Michael would be thrilled. (laughs) Till next week and lots of crotch hatching, crotch hatching, cross hatching and no feet. Chris, we don't want to crotch hatch, do we, love? That sounds painful. It does sound fit. You know, that's an excellent idea. Crotch hatching. No, that, no, that's a bad <laughs> idea, because that would lead me to talk like this. The Hobgoblin, from beginning to, well, not end, because we'd still be going up. Yeah. The Hobgoblin. Okay. From the to Amazing Spider-Man 289. I think that's a fantastic idea. I'm stealing that, Chris. I'm having it. I think it's a great idea. We'll credit you. I mean, it'll just be a, an honorary thing. We won't, we won't going to pay you or anything. But we'll mention that it was your idea if and when we get around to that. A show plug at most. Yeah. <laughs> we'll mention Supermates, because it's a great show. Our next email is Keith Mason. Dear Mr. Leyland and Mr. Leyland, in whichever order you like. I claim Mr. Leyland. And I will be Mr. Leyland also. But I want to be Mr. Leyland. Mm. Could you be Leyland and Leyland deceased? I could. <laughs> yeah, but you don't know which one's deceased. I used to love that show. Obviously not the one he's alive. No, that's very true. Just finished listening to your recent 70s show, Seven Soldiers Retrospective, and your 70s follow-up of the original Clone Saga, and loved them, which is the best kind of email. I read Seven Soldiers in the Trade and also found that they seem to flow better in that fashion than reading them individually. I can see this being part of a trilogy with Morrison's JLA classified story as part one, Seven Soldiers as part two, and Final Crisis as part three. But to me, Seven Soldiers stands alone as a great story, showcasing what's great about DC Comics and Grant Morrison, and I really enjoyed a fresh look at this 30-part opus. God, was it really 30 parts? Yeah. I read them all. Mm Mm-hmm. I read 30 Grant Morrison issues yeah. in a row, yeah. and my brain didn't explode. Nope. And I ended up coming away from it going, actually, that was quite good. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. On the topic of Seven Soldiers, yes. part four, which is Multiversity, issue one, that can't happen unless Final Crisis happened. That so is- basically what you're saying, Dan Didio's five-year timeline yeah. doesn't work. 
Multiversity is a sequel to I Final Crisis. I think what Crisis. we need to accept is Grant it Morrison... heavily references Final Crisis. Well, Grant Morrison brought back the multiverse yeah. just so he could carry on writing his stories. <laughs> yeah. And just say, uh, these happen on Earth GM. Where everyone talks like that. The Flashpoint happened in the multiverse as well. <laughs> so... Uh, Keith continues at one time or another I have read several of the 70s issues mentioned in those 70s shows and again enjoyed your perspective the most enjoyable was the Gwen Stacy Gwen Stacy the most enjoyable was the Gwen Stacy clone saga retrospective I really liked those episodes I say that but they did remind me that since past happened no it didn't la 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 I want to be not thinking about the headband in bed thing but it's in the, my head now have down it's not quite as bad yeah. As the headband on the naked clone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he even cloned her with that fucking headband on. Maybe it's a part of her. Yeah. <laughs> even Emma Stone was forced to wear it. <laughs> Keith continues, have downloaded the recent 90s episode and I'm looking forward to that one. The 90s where I really started comic collecting and despite the horrors of that time in comics, I do have some very fond memories. Well, that's my waffling done. Thanks for the hours of laughter and smiles. Keith Monkey Mason living in Liverpool, so you don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> that even made the missus laugh, Keith. So, that, well done. Luke Giaconetti's emailed it in. Some say he thinks that the jackal is cooler than Puma. But I say he's wrong. All we know is he's called Luke Giaconetti. So, are you guys clones or genetically modified students or both? Or, uh, well, I'm not a genetically modified student because I work for a living. And I'm someone else pretending to be me. Oh, yeah. Have yeah. we not been recast yet? We've not, have we? That's no. with issue 201, episode yeah. 201, isn't it? Is that when we were younger and we, we've been targeted towards a different demographic? No, we're just going to get replaced because we wanted too much money. Oh, okay. We will become the coy and Vance we, we Duke. Wanted, we wanted too much money. Yeah, we wanted some money. I just, yeah. <laughs> we didn't want too much, we just wanted some. <laughs> Yeesh, and people said the 90s clone saga was confusing, says Luke. It's very amusing to me that for a story which most people seemingly didn't remember all that well, so much time and effort was put into cleaning up the loose ends, only to make the immeasurably worse in several regards. The original story, as you guys presented, it didn't sound like a world beater, but it sounds straightforward enough in a Bronze Age way. From that sense, revisiting it in the 90s made sense, even if things didn't quite work out in the end for the clone saga. I understand the motivation. As ridiculous as this sounds, the idea of Miles Warren merely cloning Gwen and Peter is the most reasonable scenario presented in this entire ordeal. My attempt at a no prize. Maybe while Miles Warren saw Gwen Stacy as the daughter he never had, the jackal persona was the one which desired Gwen. Some kind of repressed subconscious feeling that Warren had was brought to the forefront when he turned into the jackal. I mean, I grant you that doesn't really work with the timeline, but at least it hand waves it enough for me to accept it. I can go with that. Mm-hmm. I think that's a notable no prize. Yeah, I, I'm, that's canon, Luke, as far as we're <laughs> concerned. All of this having been said, I really enjoyed and appreciated your coverage of this mid-70s opus, and I'm still searching out the original Clone Saga trade so that I can read it for myself. Yeah, it's a bit schlocky, but it's comics. A little schlock is no bad thing. The idea of the Jackal casually cloning people in his university lab is awesomely Bronze Age. It's ballsy and bold and just goes for it. I have an image of Jerry Conway putting on a pair of sunglasses and telling the readers in a complete deadpan, deal with it. Thanks for the insight, guys, and looking forward to the coverage of the 90s, Luke. Yeah, I'm having that rep, can't I? I think that's excellent. Our next email is from Kirk Gruenvall. Gruenvall. 
I can't pronounce that surname. Hiya, Kirk. <laughs> Kirk Gruenevelde, it looks like. I'm pronouncing that wrong. Do you want to try? I, I wouldn't like to have it. <laughs> Hush! Question. Hey, Andrew and Michael. And a shout-out to the little lady in the back room who we never get to hear from much. Would that be me? That would be you. You're actually here today. Okay. Normally Hello. you bugger off, don't you? Yes. <laughs> Say hello, Kirk. Hello, Kirk. I have listened to the two-part shows covering the Hush storyline and have a few basic questions. I had download problems with my MP3 player, which caused me to listen to them out of order. So I knew where the story was going and caught each of your digs about Tommy and the Riddler as they came along. I did wonder if that made sense retroactively. Yeah. When we were just saying, but why? It's not going to be the Riddler. (laughs) (laughs) Through the shows, Andrew keeps referring to the antagonist as Trenchcoat Man, which I found very helpful. It pointed out to me that we don't know who this character is, despite being seen in front of neon signs that spell out Robin, until he's introduced to us. I may be missing something, but when exactly was he introduced as Hush? That's a very good question. Yeah. When was he called Hush in the storyline itself? Do you remember? I don't think he was. I don't. He's called Hush because the storyline's called Hush, isn't he? Yeah. I mean, that's pithy, but that's it. I don't actually recall him ever having a moment... You know, like when um, Jack Nicholson takes the hat off? Yeah. And they call me Joker. He didn't have that, did he? No. He never said, call me Ishmael or whatever. (laughs) That's actually a very... You know, did we point that out or did we completely miss that? I think we might have missed it. That at no point does the central character in the storyline that is called after that central character give you his name. Well, he was Robin for 11 out of the 12 He was. That's right. And then he was Clayface. (laughs) And then, no, actually, he was Jason Todd all along. Yeah. Oh, Oh, and in fact, Kirk's next question, why is this entire storyline called Hush? Because the bad guy's called Hush. Because the bad guy's called Hush, but you don't know that. Because the story's called Hush. (laughs) It's a vicious circle, isn't it? I caught your various mentions of Catwoman saying Hush to Batman and his reaction, of Scarecrow singing Hush Little Baby, but unless I've missed something, at no time is it explained why this figure is referred to as Hush. And so, that's true. Does he? Yeah, I think he does. Oh, so that's, that's why he's called Hush. But he's not called Hush, is he? They're not going to call him Croker. <laughs> that would be a better name. <laughs> Crokey part one. <laughs> so, if Batman has never seen him, has never heard from him, not heard him referred to as Hush, why does he react to Catwoman advising to Hush when he does? Could it be a reference to Harold being unable to speak but holding his tongue? I don't get it. Something obvious has been missed here. Can you or your listeners explain? Well, we apparently can't, Kirk. Maybe it is Harold. Maybe Harold was Hush. Harold, no, well, not that, but Harold is ultimately the one who who betrays Batman and allows Hush to beat him. So that's why it's called Hush. Should be. We should have just called him Trenchcoat Man. But there's so many Trenchcoat Men. There is. It was like the 90s made a comeback, wasn't it? (laughs) Jim Lee. Jim Lee's back, people. (laughs) Um, Also, Kirk says, I guess I don't understand the British system of higher education any more than you guys understand the USA, but perhaps you could clarify. It sounds like Michael has decided to delay his entry or departure to to end a university by a year. You're calling this an enrichment year, I believe. But elsewhere, you've said he's left college after a year or two, which is puzzling me, as I thought he was just completing his high school years at 17 or 18. Well, in England, we leave school at 16. We used to. Yeah, yeah, primarily. Uh, But it's incredibly difficult to get a job at 16 now. So you either have to go to sixth form college, which is 16 to 18, or go to a regular college, 16 to 18, or do an apprenticeship. 
Mm. That's right, isn't it? Yeah. Michael has done his 16 to 18 years in sixth form. Mm-hmm. But to go to university, which is normally a four-year course... Or three. Or three, depending on normally, that's what yeah. I said. To do that, you need... Why do you need this foundation year again? To do the specific course. To do the specific course he wants, he needs this extra qualification. Mm-hmm. So after his sixth form, he is enrolled in a technical college... Yeah, for want of a better phrase. We don't want to give away where we are, do we? For for a technical college to be able to do this one year's qualification that then will enable him to go to university, which is traditionally 18 to 22-ish, but Michael will be 19 when he goes. But he's not the only person who's ever had to do this. We've we've since discovered a lot of people, haven't we, who've had to do this foundation course Mm -hmm. to go to university. So it's not that big of a deal, really. No. I hope that clears it up, but you're right, I don't understand that old fourth, fifth grade stuff. (laughs) I don't get that at all. But the point of this email is to comment about your coverage of the Clone Saga, a brave and daring attempt to have it make sense on your part. I remember glancing at a few of these issues as they came out because I was away at university and had forsworn buying or reading comics during this concentrated adult higher education. I was caught off guard by Gwen's death, assuming it to be a stunt and quickly reversed, and the appearance of each, the Grizzly, the Jackal, the Carrion and further clone, and the storyline was more and more disappointing. The entire direction and motivation of each further adventure seemed further and further from the Spider-Man stories I'd known and loved as a kid. Who were these people, these clones, and what was the artist thinking trying to run Miles Warren as a doubled-over prancing jackal, or worse, as an emaciated corpse? It drove me away, just like Daredevil wearing his cowl under a Thor wig. <laughs> oh, can we, can we cover that one? <laughs> That would be awesome. I did notice something you might have missed. When Spidey changes in Shea Stadium for the final confrontation, he is swiped by the Jackal's claws on the back of the neck, ripping the mask. I had the impression that the Jackal Warren had taken a skin sample from that swipe to produce the clone immediately. And the fact that his mask hood was repaired indicated that Peter had been out for the count for a while and that the Jackal had sewn it back up, presumably to disorient him, and make Peter question whether he was the clone or the original. But those are my impressions from reading the issue on the spinner rack back in the 19th 70s. No, I think that was just a continuity goof. Mm. He had to have had the Peter Parker clone already. Um, but like we said in the episode, I assumed from the reading of it, he knew Peter was Spider-Man from the beginning. Yeah. Jerry Conway obviously thought that but forgot to mention it. But when they retconned it in the letters page, they explained that it was after the fact that he discovered. But Jerry Conway later on retconned that retcon. Yeah. So, my thinking is he knew that he was, he learned from the clone that Peter was Spider-Man. Not that that explains why he cloned Peter Parker in the first place. Why would, actually no, that, I'm starting to question that now, because if he got the samples from Peter in college, Mm -hmm. then how would he know that he's Spider-Man? My impression was, when he cloned Peter... He had the powers. He, yeah, he learned from the clone yeah. that Peter was Spider-Man. Because right. the clone would be like, what the hell's going on? Maybe he leapt up at the roof or something, right. scared yeah. or something. That was my thinking. Yeah. He didn't know Peter was Spider-Man until he made the clone. Hmm. But that still doesn't explain why he made the clone. Because why not? Yeah, because <laughs> comics. Yeah, yeah alright, fair enough. Kurt continues, I agree that it just got worse and worse with each added-on story and retcons that paid no attention to continuity. Did you know that many of the Marvel bullpen writers were taking LSD for inspiration during this time? It claims so in Marvel Comics The Untold Story. I don't think Jerry Conway was one of them. We're just going to issue that caveat (laughs) that I don't think Jerry Conway was taking LSD. 
just in case he listens to the show. Can you just not throw the words allegedly? Allegedly. <laughs> Alas, I think we should retire the clone discussion at some, some later date when maximum clonage comes to pass and they try to explain how the jackal survived, how the eye evolutionary was tricked, and what a mess they back themselves into. <laughs> I enjoy the theme shows. They keep me from having to buy the trades or the original by explaining them all. Kirk. Well, thank you very much, Kirk. Uh, we hope somebody will be able to clear up the mess that was Hush. But I wouldn't hold your breath. We will call it a day with the email section of the show right there. And after this short commercial break for somebody else's show, we'll be right back. Gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. The Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring Superman and Batman, Golden Age Superman, the Superman Fan Podcast. The DC Comics Presents Show. From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. It's Superman. The Schuster Herald Podcast. The Carousel Podcast. Superman Forever Radio. Superman Lives. Up, Up, and Away. Cadmus to Crisis, a Superboy podcast. The Amateur Steel, a John Henry Allen podcast. The world's best podcast. And Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts. Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, Russell Bride, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Sam Rizzo, Danny Sapp, Bob Fisher, Chris Moe, Mario Benessi, Drew Wintermeyer, David Byer, Matthew Epps, I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Eunice, and co-host Scotty V. At supermanpodcastnetwork.com. One of the most notable evolutions in comics took place gradually during a mythical time called the 1980s. Creators started telling stories that dealt with more mature themes, and DC even had a marketing campaign called DC Comics, not just for kids. The new Teen Titans dealt with human relationships in a more adult way than comics had seen before. Swamp Thing became sophisticated horror, and Batman stories became grimmer. Comics like Watchmen, The Dark Knight Returns and The Killing Joke became the norm rather than the exception as DC tried to bury the stigma of Biff Bam Kapow with a steady stream of during and edgy material like The Longbow Hunters, Camelot 3000 and Arkham Asylum. A single DC out here rather than Marvel as Marvel's attempts to do mature storytelling with rare exceptions like the Narm and Elf Quest tended to just involve the Punisher and Wolverine getting more violent. DC, however, started to get more experimental with their stories and their printing. As more and more titles started dealing with more and more out-there concepts and themes, DC realised they had a problem. It didn't matter how many ad campaigns they had boasting how comics weren't just for kids anymore, or how many New York Times articles dealt with the complex narrative structure of Watchmen, or how great The Dark Knight Returns was, John and Joan Q. Citizen still equated comics with Batman, and Batman with the 1960s TV show, hardly the image DC were trying to project. It was decided that they needed an imprint for books that did not conform to the normal four-colour material that was their bread and butter. An imprint that was attractive to creators in that they would own their own work and characters and where they would be free of the shackles of the comics code. And because nature and comics publishing abhors a vacuum, thus they created 
Vertigo. And it was good. Charting the true start of the Vertigo imprint is simultaneously simple and difficult. Difficult because a number of titles that would have been Vertigo books had the imprint existed were already in publication by the time of Vertigo's debut. They started serialising V for Vendetta in September of 1988. Hellblazer began in late 1987 and Sandman, the poster child for Vertigo, in late 1988. There's little doubt in my mind that these would all have been Vertigo books had it existed, as would Mike Grell's Green Arrow run, Andy Helfer's The Shadow, Grant Morrison's Animal Man, and the Black Orchid miniseries. Hell, I reckon The Killing Joke would have been a Vertigo book. It's also very simple, because Vertigo had a very clear inception date. Books dated March 1993. Titles already at the extreme, such as the aforementioned Sandman and Hellblazer, along with Animal Man, Doom Patrol and Shade the Changing Man, were all rolled into the new imprint, and two new series debuted that month, Death and Enigma. The main creative force behind Vertigo was editor Karen Berger. Berger cut her teeth editing the edgier side of DC Comics, starting with House of Mystery, and she quickly rose through the ranks, taking on the editing chores on Wonder Woman, as well as being DC's talent scout. A trip to England in the late 80s introduced her to Neil Gaiman, Grant Morrison and Peter Milligan, and she found their approach to storytelling to be refreshingly different. I was just at the right age when Vertigo started to benefit from it, testing out all of the new books. Whilst they were of varying quality, the titles under the Vertigo banner always stood out on the racks thanks to a unique trade dress and innovative and eye-catching covers. If you go to the excellent Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics website and punch up a month from after Vertigo started, the Vertigo books all stand out from the pack. Whilst I kind of look back on my Vertigo period as a phase, it was there when I needed it to be there. And to be fair, Vertigo produced some of my favourite comic series and characters. You're much more of a child of Vertigo, aren't you, Michael? <laughs> than yeah. I am. Well, I, I, was, I was raised on them. <laughs> Purely accidentally. Yeah, 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 but I, I, I was raised on Vertigo because of you and Mum rather than Vertigo being introduced to me. Well, to be fair, you did like Batman Adventures. Yeah. You read that quite a lot as a kid. And Superman Adventures. I've got a picture of you as a child reading Superman Adventures. Well, even still in my pretentious teen years, I like superheroes just as much as I like leather jackets. That's true, but I think it's fair to say you lean more towards the macabre. Oh, yeah. You're much happier when a show is Twin Peaks yeah. than when it's just Castle. Whereas I prefer Castle. Well, that's just me. You're more like your mum, aren't you? Yeah. You like stuff to be dark and gritty and moody and mean. So which is your all-time favourite Vertigo book? I don't know. Can you not pick one? Because whilst they're all similar, they're all very different. Sandman's completely different to Preacher. Preacher's completely different to Transmetropolitan. Mm, good, good point, yeah. So a lot of my favourite ones, as well as the Invisibles and even the modern ones, like Why the Last Man, mm. they're all really good and I really like all of them, but they're all completely different. Yeah, at its best, which is all of the stuff you just mentioned, Transmet, yeah. Preacher, Sandman, Why, there isn't a typical Vertigo book. No. I mean, I think... There, there might have been at one point. Yeah, well... The poster child for Vertigo is Sandman. Yeah. Isn't it? Neil Gaiman's 75-issue series dealing with the story of Dream, one of the Endless, who rules over the world of dreams. His real name is Morpheus. 
and his brothers and sisters, Destiny, Death, Desire, Despair, Delirium, formerly Delight, and Destruction. And if this, if there is a quintessential Vertigo book, it's this one. It represents everything Vertigo is. Yes. Pretentious. Uh, I would argue, and I don't mean to be insulting here, but it's probably going to come across that way, so whatever. I would argue it is a vast chunk of the audience of this book, rather than the book itself, that maybe lean perhaps more towards the slightly precious (laughs) end of the spectrum. Yeah. I think it's very easily for a Vertigo title to seem pretentious, though. Yes. Yes, it is. Even when it's not. Like, I, like, I don't believe that Neil Gaiman went in and purposely wrote a pretentious book. No, well, any, any work in the comics medium that achieves a measure of outside success brings with it a certain level of pretension with some of the fans having the attitude that this is somehow too good to be a comic book. Which yeah. I think is elitist snobbery. You get out with a lot of things. Yeah. Killing joke, Watchmen. But to be fair, Neil Gaiman, for his part, mm. has always just referred to them as comics. Yes. If you ever interview him, he doesn't refer to it as graphic literature. Mm. He doesn't refer to it as a highfalutin terms. He calls them comics. Yeah. So there's a level of down-to-earthness to Gaiman that probably explains why I like him. He doesn't seem to buy in to the myth of Sandman. While he's appreciative of his fans, yeah. he doesn't buy into his own myth, Yeah, essentially. Even though there's an entire story about it, him meeting his characters. Yes. You know, but Grant Morrison does that all the time. Yeah. And, you know, Stan and Jack met the Fantastic Four. No, I mean, he met his characters... His characters didn't meet him in the comic. He claims, like Alan Moore, met John Constantine. And like Grant Morrison's met Superman. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I forgot that one. Mm. Right. Okay. Fair enough. Sandman has won a slew of awards, being one of only four comics in its collected editions to make the New York Times bestseller list and Entertainment Weekly's best reads of 1983 to 2008. It has won 26 Eisner Awards, a Hugo Award, a World Fantasy Award, a Bram Stoker Award, and the Angloim, that's French so I can't pronounce it, International Comics Festival Prize. It also won IGN's award for Best Vertigo Series. It was remarkable in that its core audience was not comics readers, instead attracting a whole new audience to comics of young college-aged women who had never read nor would ever go on to read other comics. And it's to the industry's eternal shame that they were never able to keep this audience. Would that not be because Neil Gaiman's an author and it's a very literary book? He wasn't at the time Sandman was coming out, was he? I'm not sure. Do Don't Panic Kit has already been out. Yeah. His book about Douglas Adams. Was his Duran Duran book out? His Duran Duran book may very <laughs> well have been out, yes. See, how can you not love a guy who writes Sandman and a book about Duran Duran? Yeah. Come on. Is that why he refers to them as comics, then? Because he wrote comics before he was an author? No, I think he's just like me. They're just comics. Yeah. I, don't, I don't like calling them graphic novels. And I don't like calling them fantasy literature or whatever stupid name the comics <laughs> yeah. you ass <laughs> to a quote a great man so see the, I can't remember no Good Omens Good Omens when did Good Omens come out I'm not sure 
I think Good Omens came out in late 88, early 89-ish. Right, so you would have been doing them so, the same Yeah, so time. Good Omens will have dropped at roughly the same time Sandman was. Hmm. And Good Omens, remember, was sold on the back of Terry Pratchett's name, not Neil Gaiman's. But it made Gaiman's. But it made Gaiman's career, yeah. yeah. A, and I think the fact that he had a, that book out at the same time he had Sandman out mm. has what's enabled him to jump between the two relatively easily. Yeah. Because at the same time he had that book on the bestseller lists, he was churning out Sandman. Mm. And then, by extension, Sandman ended up on the bestseller lists. Yeah. And then he went on and wrote um, Stardust was next, wasn't it? Mm. I mean, I think, as with everything, there was a certain amount of luck involved in his career. Yeah. I think both of those things happening at the same time helped him immeasurably. Mm. But, anyway, you know. Technically, we've cheated here, because this pick didn't originally see print under the Vertigo banner, but Michael's copy, which is here, is the Absolute Edition Volume 1, is clearly labelled Vertigo. Well, all the reprints are. So, it counts as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> our gaff, our rules. So, in that case, all of Morrison's Animal Man is a Vertigo. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. I don't mind it being retroactively being a Vertigo book, to be brutally honest with you. It's still in the 90s as well. So, it fits. Was this one? It does for, yes, it was. A Dream right. of a Thousand Cats, Salmon issue 18, was cover dated August 1990. Aww. So, it just came in under the wire. It has a typically abstract Dave McKean cover painting of what looks like a frame that's broken with a blurry cat leaping off a box through a yellow cloud. I'm sure it symbolises something to the people who overanalyze this stuff, but to me it's murky and muddy. It's interesting in how completely different it was to every other cover on the stands, which earns it credit, but I'm not that big a fan of McKean, am I? No. And this doesn't really do anything to change my mind. I can appreciate it yeah. without actually liking it. I really like McKean. I was, I was going to say, but you love Dave McKean, don't you? Next to the current covers for Overture, with J.H. Williams doing the other covers, Williams is kind of... Every time I buy you that, you say, yeah, make sure you get me the J.H. Williams cover. Because Williams kind of piddles all over McKean. Does he? Yeah. Is Is Dave McKean just now become stylized out the wazoo, or has he just got to a point where you you yeah. don't, his stuff's just the same as it always was? No, because it's still really good, but his, Williams' style and colour just is so much better J- than J.H. Williams the third is just fantastic. Mm. So is McKean, it's just a different kind of... Fantastic. Yeah. Alright, fair enough. By the way, the cover kind of symbolises a broken frame and the cat jumping out of it to be released from his shackles of the frame. Does it? <laughs> yeah. I knew there was a reason I had you on this show. <laughs> <laughs> See, when we do the Vertigo stuff, you bring your A game. Yeah. All the cats are stuck in the in in the shackles of mankind. They were once free. They're all boxed in. Yeah, and now they're boxed in, but it's jumping through the crack. So it's the... breaking through the confines of established yes. life, mm-hmm. essentially. All right. I still think it's murky and muddy. <laughs> uh, Neil Gaiman wrote it. Kelly Jones and Malcolm Jones III drew it. It's some of Kelly Jones' best artwork. I mean, I'm the guy who, when he did Batman, we were like, what the <laughs> hell is this? Mm. 
But this is fantastic. Because he can draw a damn adorable cat. He can. And uh, one would imagine that is a major requirement for a story <laughs> that's all about cats. Yeah. So, okay. A small white kitten is summoned to the window after her pets have gone to bed by another older cat who informs the kitten that tonight is the night that a wise old Siamese who has travelled the world will tell them all a tale of the way things used to be. In an old cemetery, the Siamese tells of how her love led to kittens, but her humans did not share in her joy, and disposed of her children. Saddened, the Siamese left her home, and travelled the world where she learned from the Dream King that it was not always this way. Once, long ago, cats truly ruled this world. They were larger than they are now, and all the world was their playground with humanity, who were then very, very small, attended to their every whim. However, as the humans grew, one of them started to preach that dreams changed the world, and as more people listened, more dreamt, and the dream slowly became reality. Cats were no longer dominant, rather they were tiny, and the humans were now huge. Dream informs the Siamese that the world was changed retroactively due to the power of the human's dream, and there never was a world of cat ladies and cat lords. The Siamese came away with the knowledge that he could dream such a thing, and if he could, then other cats could, and the spell could be reversed. Cats would once again rule all. The small kitten believes that it is possible, and as such, later at home, while she sleeps, she dreams. The humans, oblivious, simply find it cute. Aww. This was lovely, wasn't it? Mm. This was a really nice story. Kind of scary. Why? Do you think it was scary? I think it's 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 supposed to be scary because it plays on that it, it it kind of plays on your beliefs of how the way things are of always being like that. You think? Yeah. See, I see. I thought that this was the first time Gaiman essentially took this out of the horror genre and more into fantasy. Mm. with this one I was I mean I actually said just before we started recording it's like I think your sister should read this issue yeah I think your sister would love this I know your mum would dream of a thousand cats I, well it's a standalone it's a standalone issue you could read this we should have had you read it and come on the show tonight because uh, yeah again because uh, I, th- I think you would enjoy this Penguin, on a page by page basis I don't have a lot with this the story flows so well that I was just engrossed in reading it and I wasn't really terribly concerned with the minutia. As with all of Game and Sandman work, there is a lot going on behind this rather simple tale. First, and you can tell me if you disagree with my pretentious ramblings of the inner meanings and hidden depths of Sandman issue 18, but it's the idea that it's the young that will change the world. Yeah. The old, the elder cat is amused by the Siamese tale, but the younger kitten is swayed by her words, which plays into the idea that it's the next generation that will hopefully change the world, preferably, or hopefully for the better. Adults are too set in their ways, but children will change whatever we messed up while we were in charge. That's the theory, anyway, by and large. They just seem to make the same mistakes. Secondly, there's the idea that the cats actually believe they deserve to rule the world. And I can't see them doing a worse job of it either. <laughs> They'll just sleep. What can they mess up? Yeah, that's, that's very true. In fact, Gaiman has a number of cats. He, he offers here a very keenly observed story about felines, the idea that the dream will never happen 
as getting a thousand cats to do something at the same time is very funny. Yeah. I was like, there's no way in hell that's going to happen. Because that's what the uh, elder cat says, isn't it? You are never going to get a bunch of cats to do the same thing at the same time. It's the people who hate people club. Yeah, that's what cats are, isn't it? (laughs) The people who hate people society. And um, the idea that when they all go out at night to some secret cat meeting certainly explains (laughs) where our cats go at night. Yeah. Because we did used to have one who did come and call for Chester. Yeah. He'd sit on the back and go, Are you coming out? And Chester would be like, I don't know, my pets won't let me. (laughs) <laughs> and they uh, come through that window so all of that rung true and then thirdly is the idea that cats represent a persecuted race with the humans thinking them simply as playthings. I liked how the humans are never in the issue yeah they're the, always obscured the, too the humans are exactly like the humans are in Tom and Jerry cartoons yeah you see the feet or the hands or and you hear them talking but you never actually see them, do you? Mm. Which, is, uh, which I thought was a nice touch. I thought that was really quite clever. The idea that Morpheus appears to cats as a cat is consistent with the themes of the series, that everybody dreams and everybody has the capacity to act upon those dreams, although the cats, resolutely individualistic by nature, won't band together to achieve that dream. Mm. And again, you can argue that he's claiming that of humans by extension we're never going to be this peaceful utopian society because we can't get along with each other yeah you know get two people in a room together and they won't believe the same things Hmm. so by extension he's talking about humanity here even though the story is about cats in in my opinion obviously it's it's easy to overanalyze sandman yeah isn't it they should teach these in schools rather than poems that really I are believe, too pretentious. I believe that there is some some courses about Sandman in university. Is I'm pretty convinced there is. I'd put money on it to grab them with you. Wouldn't it just be a, a, a class full of girls wearing too much black makeup? <laughs> class full of goth girls. Yeah. That's all it's going to be. It also explores the idea that dreams like youth are what will change the world. Hmm. Which I thought was quite nice. But does it not also say that dreams ultimately fail? Are just dreams. Yeah. See? Wow, deep man. Yeah. We should all, we should be wearing a black beret for this one, shall we? <laughs> and smoking. And we should have a glass of whiskey. In a dimly lit room. In a dimly lit room, yeah. The film is in black and white. <laughs> speak in, should we speak in French? BBC Four. Yeah, we should have done this bit in French. <laughs> and been really over the top with it. The problem with Salmon. I mean, as I think we've just demonstrated, it's been examined to death. There's even a series of books called The Annotated Sandman to explain it all to you. But thankfully, if you want to ignore everything we just said, Mm. all our pretentious warblings, this is still a funny little story about anthropomorphic cats. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. That's what I mean. Your sister could read this, and she would just read it. It's a funny little story about cats. Yeah. Well, what I was saying about how it's quite scary... I guess that's only there if you read it in a certain way. Yeah. Because I kind of read it as though... Well, you're a bit older than she is. I guess, yeah. But I kind of read it as though if humans could change the world just by dreaming and have no recollection of the way the world was, Mm. if... Like the new 52? Yeah. (laughs) Like, there are different ways humanity could have lived without remembering it and that it can change overnight without you knowing about it very good yeah. and dreaming as Blondie once pointed out is, is free <laughs> yeah. 
So, you know, it doesn't cost anything to have a dream. You know, I did try and read the annotated verse, the annotated Sandman. And do you not like it? I, I hate it. Why? Because it disagrees with me. Oh, right, fair <laughs> enough. Okay. Uh, it does verge on cuteness a <laughs> little bit, but it was never overbearing. And Gaiman's writing is strong enough that he does avoid the pitfall of being cute for the sake of being cute. The art is wonderfully moody and dark throughout, except for the first and last pages, where the kitten exists in the human world. Mm. But other than that, everything's dark and nighttime, isn't it? So yeah. even though the kitten is adorably cute, she's adorably cute in a world of graveyards and big tree branches with large shadows. And so essentially in a Kelly Jones drawing in written a, by Neil Gaiman. Yeah, um, it's only retroactively, but there's a weeping angel yeah. with the cat sat on top of it. Well, you know, this is actually a really, really dark story, even on the surface. Mm. It's about a mother losing her children. Yeah, no, more than that, it's about a mother who has her children taken away from her yeah. and murdered. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's what I'm saying to you. Your sister could read this and she'd have this lovely little story about cats and what they do at even, night. And even with that one panel of him drowning the cat. Yeah. Even with, well, your sister would just gloss over that. Right, okay. Yeah, well, she'd probably go, oh, oh, cute. Yeah. Whereas we're reading it and you get a completely different experience from it. Mm. And it's, uh, it's quite a good one, that. I'm glad we... Because originally we didn't pick that one. No. Originally we picked a different story, didn't we? I wanted to pick a completely different one. Yeah, but ultimately we settled on Dream of a Thousand Cats. It does have to be said that these Absolute Editions are gorgeous. Oh, yeah. Aren't they? Pain in the ass to read. Uh, not as big of a pain in the ass as some of Marvel's omnibuses. Or any of DC's omnibuses. Or some of DC's omnibuses. But uh, I think these are just a good size. They're not... Yeah. I mean, you can't sit and read them. You've got to have them on the floor or on the bed or something. Hmm. But uh, other than that... They're really uh, well presented as well with the leather and... Yeah, the, the proper, proper what's it. What do you think of that cover, Ange? I like it. Excellent, good. What does it represent? The cat's breaking free and... Well, See, you both just look at it and go, well, obviously this symbolises the cat's breaking free of the confines. But it, it's not stuck in the frame, it's, it's going to run out of that. And game. I looked at it and saw Merc. <laughs> cats always have an escape route. They do, that's true. Dream of a Thousand Cats. It's good, that. Mm -hmm. It was a good pick, that. I disagree with a part of the story. Why? Where the humans got big and the cats got little and the humans took over. Mm -hmm. What do you disagree with it? Because you said that the, the people are now in charge of the cats. Mm, because the humans have dreamed that that's the way it always was. Nobody's in charge of a cat. <laughs> <laughs> but we're not being hunted and eaten by them anymore. That's very true. No. But well, I, I did read something that anybody who owns a cat knows that nobody owns a cat. No, the cat allows you <laughs> to own them or think that you own no. them. They allow you to give them food and they allow you to give them shelter. But when they want to go out, they're, out, they're gone and they owe you nothing and owe you no loyalty. Which is something they bring up in that issue. Yeah, which is something they bring up in the story. That was excellent, that. I really did enjoy it. Every time we do a Sandman on here, it makes me want to go and read them all. And yeah. then I look at all four of these volumes on your shelf and I go, nah. Yeah. <laughs> read them again when Overture finishes in about three years. Read them again in a year's time when we don't have this show today. Yeah. And uh, I'll have some free time. Excellent, that. What did you think of it? I, it's not one of my favourites, but it's, it's good. It's a shame we didn't rope your mum and your sister into doing that mm. with us. I think that would have been fun. Even the not very good issues of Sandman are still really, really good. So what you're basically saying is Sandman, likes, Sandman is like sex. Even when it's bad, it's very good. Even when it's bad, it's sex. Yeah, there you go. 
microphone on the floor. <laughs> Off she went. Preacher is one of my all-time favourite series and was a step out of Vertigo's comfort zone. For one thing, it was really pretentious. And for another, the art wasn't muddy and indefinable. Pithy? Yeah, probably. But Preacher is, in many ways, the antidote to the typical Vertigo book. And for me, a series I'd give to any open-minded person when asked what comic they should read. Described as part religious satire, part treatise on gender politics, part philosophical mediation on the nature of good versus evil, and part ass-kicking romp through the heartlands of America, Garth Ennis and Steve Dillon's Preacher followed the story of Jesse Custer, reluctant man of God, and even more reluctant carrier of the demon-angel hybrid Genesis, as he participated in an American road movie and modern-day western in his quest to find God, quite literally. It's not for the faint of heart or easily offended. The extended narrative of Preacher ran for 66 issues and presented readers with a complete story from beginning to end. Some say the first two-thirds of the journey are the best, and I'd agree with that assessment, but the whole journey is enjoyable and wonderfully profane. Unlike Ennis's later works, like The Boys, Preacher feels like it has a point and sticks to it. And whilst its targets are sometimes easy, there's a wit and humour to Preacher that carries the day. Basically, if you've not got a sense of humour about yourself, you don't read Garth Ennis's work to begin with, because at some point you're going to find yourself the butt of one of his gags. <laughs> Case in point, the Preacher special, Cassidy Blood and Whiskey, was a spin-off one-shot, but unlike some of the other one-shots and miniseries, was by the main series creative team of Ennis and Dillon. The bookshelf edition, Squirrel-Bound Comic, came out at Christmas 1997, with a cover by Glenn Fabre. It's a close-up of Irish vampire Cassidy wearing his trademark Ray-Bans and denim jacket. Reflected in the sunglasses are people watching TV. What do you think of that cover? I like it. It follows the same format as of the other Preacher specials. I don't remember Saints of Killers having a cover, a close-up cover like that. That was a miniseries. Oh, right. Well, all the, right. Good, the good old boys didn't either, but those are the only two that didn't. Arseface, Arseface does. And the Sorry, Root Jr. does. <laughs> yeah. And the one with the German guy. Oh, her star. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, all right, then I'll give you that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And all the Alamo covers. Yeah, it does tie into the, the final story arc of, uh, of Preacher Alamo, doesn't it? This actually is a good backstory to... To Alamo? No, yeah, is that the one where Jesse meets the old person that Cassidy used to know? Yeah. Because they mention the eyes? Yeah. Yeah. And you don't actually see that, you don't get a payoff for that in this, do you? No. You, Cassidy keeps his eyes behind sunglasses throughout the entire run of the book. And you never actually see his eyes, although a character in the book does. Yeah. And refers to them, but we, the reader, never see them. So, yeah, fair enough. That, that was the first comic book artist your mum ever recognised. Glenn Fabric. From across the room, she could go, that's a Glenn Fabric cover. Yeah. And that's when I thought, Keeper. <laughs> but even though all of his covers, even though his art style is completely different in every cover. Yeah, the only last... person he's consistent with is Cassidy. <laughs> yeah. And even then, not so much. But yeah. Tulip looks different every time he paints her. Yeah. And even, even Jesse does. Yeah. Doesn't he, to be brutally honest with it. Irish vampire Cassidy is on the run from a redneck sheriff whose wife Cassidy has pleasured. The sheriff, none too pleased with this state of affairs, blows a chunk out of Cassidy's head and the car careens over a ravine, Thelma and Louise style. 
The sheriff don't believe Cassidy's dead, having put a 12-gauge through his chest yesterday, and orders the riverbed search, but his deputies take off for the night. The sheriff waits, but Cassidy jumps out of the river, sinking his teeth into the sheriff's neck, and leaves. His road trip to New York is interrupted when he senses a disturbance in the force, another like him in New Orleans. Cass locates the source and is disappointed that the first person like himself he has discovered since he became a vampire 75 years ago is a bit of a ponce, what with the cape and gathering of goth hangers on. Cass decides to show Ecurius that being a vampire isn't about drinking blood or being all goth and pretentious, it's about having fun. None of that crap in the books is real, the crosses, the garlic, etc. In fact, the only thing they have to fear is direct sunlight, so why not enjoy life? Cass tells Acarius that they don't even need to kill. After all, blood from a pork chop is still blood, and that Cass has only ever killed in cases where someone has tried to do him in. Acarius seems to take to Cass's lifestyle, until Cass discovers Acarius feeding off one of his followers and learns that he has in fact killed time and time again. People don't change, Acarius tells Cass, so Cass puts a cross in Acarius's head and ties him to the church roof. At dawn, the sun makes short work of Acurius, and Cass is even a tad upset about it all. His mood is lightened at the bar where he picks up the barmaid. Groovy. <laughs> Only not quite groovy. Well, he says groovy quite a few times. He, he, he doesn't just say groovy, though, which is hilarious. Yeah, I, I kind of omitted the four-letter word that preceded <laughs> groovy. Because, by and large, we still try to stay on the right side of family-friendly. Despite the fact we've covered Preacher how many times? This will be the... No, this will be the second time we've covered Preacher, isn't it? Third, fourth. Is it the third? Vietnam. Root Junior. Root Junior! Good old boys. Yes. Alright, this is the fourth time we've covered Preacher. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Every time we've done it, we've done it in a PG-13 way. (laughs) You know what a PG-13... Root Junior. Yeah, Root Junior. PG-13, you're allowed to say once. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So we just said it. That's uh, so why I just... We can't say it again. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> the opening scene kicks off a pre-credits type beginning. It's very James Bond or Indiana Jones. And we've got no idea how Cassidy got into this trouble uh, being pursued by police. It's very smoky in the bandit. Yeah. Uh, there's something about him shagging the sheriff's wife. <laughs> it's a great line of dialogue. Yes. Yes, it is. Followed by she wasn't worth it. <laughs> Well, she's probably not worth getting his brains blown out, no. It is very, very, very funny. Uh, it's a great beginning. Dylan's expressive face is worth the price of admission alone, as is the shaft casket in the side of his head blown off. <laughs> oh, God, we're going to hell for liking this comic out. Ennis's dialogue is absolutely fantastic. There's a lot of colourful profanity, particularly from the sheriff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's hysterical if you find Malcolm Tucker S. swearing funny. Which, let's be honest, we do. <laughs> uh, Malcolm Tucker and Batiatis in Spartacus elevated television swearing to an art form. <laughs> and Ennis follows in that grand tradition, albeit he did it before Malcolm Tucker. So this was... Uh, it's, I, I wish I could read that, but I'm not going to. <laughs> Can you not just bleep out every other word? There'd be a, they'd, it'd just be bleep, bleepity, bleep, 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 bleep. I am gonna bleep, 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 wouldn't it? Do you remember Sean Engel's email about Hellblazer a while ago, where that was mostly beeps? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just don't want to do a 
bleepy bleep 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 show. Those are always funny. Are Bleeps are usually funnier than... That actually swearing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Alright, fair enough. There's some nice touches in the scene where Cass feeds off the sheriff. For one, it's quite shocking because we weren't actually used to Cassidy doing stuff like this. Mm. And as the story goes along, you learn that he doesn't do stuff like this. He doesn't make a habit of it. But for some reason, Cass only now has on a wife beater and a pair of Walter White Y fronts. He steals the sheriff's sunglasses to cover his eyes because he must do because his own sunglasses got blasted off earlier on. But the sheriff doesn't seem to have any sunglasses. Yes, he does on his pocket. Oh, so he does. He's got them tucked in his breast pocket. I did not see that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Okay. Fodoos, I missed that little touch. So that's that's where he gets them from. I like how it goes from really kind of comedic to really graphic and violent and then back to comedic again. Yeah, which Ennis did an awful lot, didn't he? He walked that fine line between horror and humour very, very well. Which he did really well because Cassidy was the only vampire and vampires were the only kind of weird thing about Preacher. Other than the fact that he could compel people to do whatever he wanted to do with his superpower that he never used. Yeah, but that kind of comes under the religious thing. Yeah, which he avoided as much as possible. Yeah, there's no other kind of monsters other than Cassidy being the vampire. No, because Preacher subscribes to the idea that the biggest monster is man. Yeah. His exclamation of groovy is obviously a nod (laughs) to the evil dead. Again, he uses a four-letter word prior to Groovy. Yeah. But uh, it's funny. It's very funny. As with Buffy the Vampire Slayer, with which Cass shows a similarity to Spike, let's be honest, vampires can sense each other. Yeah. Is that from things other than Buffy? Can Dracula sense other vampires? I don't remember. I assumed it was the smell. Well, the, the dead. Yeah. I always wonder why people find vampires attractive. He's dead. <laughs> He's going to stink to high heaven. Maybe that's what the sparkly things are around. <laughs> to get rid of the smell. Yeah, yeah. All right, fair enough. Uh, Acarius's dialogue is a wonderful piss take <laughs> of some of the more pretentious vampire fiction. Twilight hadn't been written yet, but this evokes that series, you know, all those worthy but dull vampires. But this is really a more pointed satire on Anne Rice's The Vampire Chronicles. Ennis seems to have a lot of fun with Acarius's more pompous pronouncements. And it's wonderfully skewered by Cass going, Hey, you're a wanker, aren't you? <laughs> and Acarius doesn't know what a wanker is, which just makes it funnier. <laughs> I love his dire description of it. Wanker, noun, one who wanks. <laughs> Should I try an Irish accent? I should have just not bothered. <laughs> um, because I've been wandering around the world for three quarters of a century watching all my mates dying or getting old, and now I finally find someone who's going to live forever, and he turns out he's a bit of a prick. I did not know that Grant Morrison played <laughs> Cassidy. <laughs> because I've been wandering around the world for three quarters of a century watching all my mates dying or getting old, and now I finally find someone else who's going to live forever, and, well, it turns out he's a bit of a prick. <laughs> was that better? That was... It was still crap, <laughs> yeah. but it was a, it was a higher level of crap yeah. than Cassidy, the Scottish vampire. <laughs> <laughs> it was genius. I absolutely love it. Cass's reaction to being given blood to drink is hysterical. He just spits it out. And then when he's shown that he sleeps in a coffin... <laughs> Cassidy's like, there's no way in hell I am sleeping in that. 
And then he looks at um, Icarius's bookshelf, and it's all full of books like the Necromonicon. Which isn't an actual book. Which is, well, that's um, Evil Dead, isn't it? H.P. Uh, Lovecraft. H.P. Lovecraft. I know I was mixing it up from something. Cass prefers Elmore Leonard. Yeah. I liked how the 120 Days of Sodom was on there. <laughs> Written by the Marquis de Sade. Indeed. Which is where uh, sodomy, not so- sodomy, uh, sadism comes from. Because he was very much into that, and he wrote 120 Days of Sodom in prison. Isn't there a preacher story arc? There's an invisible Based story Based around arc. that. I'm sure there's a preacher on as well, based around the Marquis de Sade. I'm not sure. That. I'm pretty sure there is, but I could be misremembering it. Is that not the fat French guy who's the Marquis of something else? It may be. I may yeah. be mixing him up with the fat French guy. Yeah, whose name I've temporarily forgotten. Uh, when they're in the bar, Cass has totally got the barmaid in the palm of his hand. <laughs> Which is, I love this scene. Is it, why do you like this scene? <laughs> Other than it being hysterical. And it being quite subtle as well for Ennis. In what way? In the way that the implication there is she thinks they're gay. Oh, yeah, 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 totally. And I love that when she says, I do like his Batman outfit. <laughs> <laughs> and there's all, there's, there's all this bit's brilliant where he's um, thinking of, the barmaid says this is a horse free zone <laughs> and then Echurious walks in and Cass is not anymore <laughs> every panel Cassie just sinks lower and lower <laughs> as he's desperately trying to cop off with this barman the only problem with her is because it's Steve Dillon she looks, she like looks exactly like Tulip <laughs> which actually does tie into Preacher so that may yeah. actually work or it could instead of being a limitation of Dillon's art Cassidy has a type yeah Cassidy has a type yeah, that actually totally works. I'm going with it. I don't really know how we can go into this. There's a college girl who takes her top off. And uh, Cassidy wants to do this instead of go to the goth hangout. And he's uh, lying 20 bucks if you rub Hagen Doss all over them. And then the next panel he stops off for her. And the next panel he's had to go and get some Hagen Doss. <laughs> My God, this is just... <laughs> You know, we've even made the lovely listeners love this by now. I loathe it. (laughs) Yeah. Some of them must be sat around going, how can you read this? (laughs) Because it's funny, and let's be honest, we're a little bit sick and twisted. Mm -hmm. And Mm. it's very serious at the same time. Yeah, and the goth scene, when uh, Echarius takes um, Cass to his hangers-on, I love that one of them's got an ankh. <laughs> and one of them, Neil Gaiman. And one of them is totally Neil Gaiman. Writing poetry. The sensitive poet. And like, yeah, I love Cassie's line, how oh, did I know this wasn't going to rhyme? <laughs> and Spike, the bloody awful poet. Yeah. So, I, I, if Spike wasn't based on Cassidy, it's an incredible coincidence. He's more of a John Constantine. You think? Yeah. All right, All fair both. enough. I love this t- this piss-taker Neil Gaiman. <laughs> yeah. Especially when we've just read an issue of Sandbomb. <laughs> Neil Gaiman must have a pretty good sense of humour about himself. Yeah. Because to, to, I think he said he actually found this quite funny. Hmm. So that's another reason to like Neil Gaiman. Yeah. He's not up himself. He's, he's quite happy to have Garth Ennis take the mick out of him. I wonder if he ever retaliated. I wonder if he ever took the mick out of Garth Ennis in something. I just don't know. That would be quite funny. <laughs> yeah. I, I did like the line of dialogue as well. Next time, cut downwards instead of across. <laughs> For the girl who's tried to kill herself. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> and the fat wall who says, if you need someone to tell you, then you don't, you, you will never know. <laughs> oh, 
all lovely listener, go and buy this. <laughs> Just go out and buy yourself a copy of it, because it's absolutely fantastic. I love that Cass takes Echarius away from the goth club. Yeah. And, um... Introducing him just to the coolness of being a vampire. Again, Spike in Buffy loved being a vampire. The shots of him getting drunk are very funny and very well observed. But as well as being funny, it's quite touching. When he's talking about, um, did you ever try jumping off the roof and turning into a bat? And Akira says, I tried the bat thing once. Broke bro- bro- both my legs. Yeah. <laughs> and the drunk bit. Is absolutely <laughs> brilliant. Really curious, we're in a leather jacket now. Yeah, and uh, you're my best mate, you are. <laughs> Every evening ends like that. <laughs> the bit with the shoulder asses. They go back to the golf club and moon them. I mean, why are we running away? Because it's funny. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love Ennis's use of the word wankers as well. Oh, dear me. Uh, but then it's, it's undercut by the reveal that Acarius is feeding off people, and Cass even shows his victim that he's just killed a modicum of respect, doesn't he? Because he closes her eyes. And, and even as he mourns her, in his own way. Yeah. But he, it, And it suddenly turns serious. Because if anything, Garth Ennis sticks to the idea that just because life... Life doesn't stop being serious when it's funny, just like it doesn't stop being funny when it's serious. Mm. And Preach is like the epitome of that, isn't it? Yeah. On the page before this, we were laughing. And then we get to this page and we feel like Cassie did us for that poor girl. Even in the middle of it, there's the funny panel of him falling over. Yeah. After he just smacked him in the head with the cross. Yeah. And it's... And I loved him tying him to the roof and letting him burn. Mm. Which he, he deserved. Mm-hmm. Quite frankly. Because Cassie doesn't go out of his way to kill people. And I love that his accent disappears. Now, did you get the feeling he was putting on a faux British accent there? Yeah. Throughout this entire the re- and then it turns out that he wasn't actually. He's written in a way to have a full British accent. He's written in a way to it. be pretentious. Yeah, but yeah. I didn't. I read that as he could be like being Tom Cruise in Interview with a Vampire. Yeah. I, I wouldn't call that a British accent. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, okay, fair enough. And Cassidy's quite despondent at the end of it uh, until he picks up the barmaid. Yeah. And then everything's groovy again. I do like the line of dialogue and where's your in accent car as you whack up. Yeah, as he uh, as he bursts into flames. This is quite slight. Yeah. For a sixty four page graphic novel. Or square bound. What were these called? Bookshelf edition they were called, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah, they weren't called graphic novels. Well not the prestige ones. A bookshelf edition prestige format, whatever. Yeah. I love that suggested for mature readers is in very, very, very small <laughs> letters. There's a part of me that that thinks the idea of somebody buying this for their kids. <laughs> <laughs> is preacher as a name not not just suggesting mature reader now? Uh, I don't know, to be honest. I mean, certainly you wouldn't buy that cover for a kid, would? You? <laughs> or I wouldn't. Anyway. Oh well, I obviously I did. Yeah. <laughs> Because I've obviously screwed up being a parent. <laughs> As I say, it's a bit slight, but my God, it's entertaining. This tale of vampirism in the Ennis verse. Mm. No moping around being all goth and writing bloody awful poetry for Cassidy, who'd rather eat, drink and make merry in lieu of pondering what it means to be a child of the night. Ostensibly a massive piss take of Anne Rice, the goth lifestyle, and even Neil Gaiman, Cass still comes across as being quite honourable. After all, he only kills the sheriff in self-defence, and it's made quite clear in the narrative that Cass doesn't kill unless he has to, and he certainly doesn't do it for fun. 
If Fur rattles along and Ennis manages to sneak in a lot of his trademark black humour and irreverence, but this is a strong character piece with some genuinely touching moments. Steve Dillon does his usual effective job on the art. There's nothing here we haven't seen before from Dillon, but he does it well. In fact, that could be the wrap-up for this special. There's nothing here we haven't seen Ennis do before. But it's not Ennis on autopilot, as we'll see in some of his later work. Rather, Ennis simply having fun. And as such, the reader has fun with him. Did you like that? I, I did. It's my favourite of the specials. Is it? Yeah. More than Root Jr.? Yes. Okay. Root Jr.'s kind of dull, I'll be honest. It's, yeah, it's a bit worthy, that one, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, his targets of Kurt Cobain fans is a little bit obvious, mm. taken from this, the 21st perspective, 21st century perspective we're now viewing it in. Yeah. Whereas the good old boys, is just funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I like that one. It's not, you don't really need it to be part of the overall 66 issue arc, mm. but it is traded, isn't it, it? It works both ways. Yeah, I think it's traded in the ancient histories trade. Well, they've along with the Saint of Killers mini. They've done the deluxe editions now. Oh, have they? Because I, I think there's one of them which just collects all the specials. Right. That's mixed in with the deluxe. Alright. Yeah, Ancient History's only collected a couple of the specials in the Saint of Killers miniseries. Yeah. Alright, fair enough. One of the things that Vertigo did best was giving different creators a venue for telling stories that may not lend themselves to a series or even a mini-series. Vertigo Voices was a collection of one-shot books, similar to original graphic novels, but priced in the usual range of a double-sized comic, meaning that more people were liable to check them out, especially if they were by proven creators. All four were very well received by the readership of the time, and all four are fondly remembered, if the comic book message boards are to be believed. The four one-shots were released in 1995, and Consisted of Face by Peter Milligan and Duncan Fagrado, Tainted by Jamie Delano and Al Davison, Kill Your Boyfriend by Grant Morrison and Philip Bond, and The Eaters by Pete Milligan and Dean Ormston, which is what we're going to look at tonight. The cover shows the eaters of the title, or rather three of the four members of the family, in a cooking pot that has a hand in it. I got a distinct EC Comics vibe from that cover. Okay. Did you not? Mm. Not from the style of the art. Yeah. The, Isle of the, the style of the art, the Isle of the Start, is very Meg Mignola. But just the, uh, the, the normal, everyday situation of three people sitting down for dinner with the home sweet home, stitching in the background, but in the pots of hand. Yeah. I got very easy from that. Yeah, and it's a family portrait as well. That's wallpaper behind it. Yeah. Oh, is it? Yeah. I thought she was coming through the door. No. There's wallpaper. Oh, around. right. Oh, right. The, the looking at the overall cover. Yeah. Oh, yeah. As with Dream of a Thousand Cats, it's in a picture frame. Mm-hmm. Where's the son? Maybe he's in another room. You think he's in a different room? He's on the PlayStation. Yeah. I'm sorry, N64. Or whatever it was at this time. <laughs> yeah. uh, this is... You've got this signed. I have. Who's it signed by? Peter Milligan. Wow. So the actual cover of this comic is signed. Mm-hmm. I got you this out of the 50p bin. You did. The Quills are your average family. They go to church, they come from a historic lineage. Their grandfather invented the toenail clipper or some such, and they believe in family. They also eat people. See, many years ago, Adam and Helen Quill were stranded in the Rocky Mountains with Shay Chesterson and 12 others when a charity hot air balloon run went south. For 10 days, they were feared lost. 
However, upon recovery, only the Quills and the Chestersons survived, oddly healthier than before. With the Quills now settled in Churchill and Chesterson, the Murr of San Diego, the Quills haven't seen Shay for 18 years. However, when the Quills' daughter, Cassandra's new boyfriend, proves too succulent a morsel for Adam to pass up, Cassandra petulantly points out that they said they wouldn't eat another of her boyfriends. Adam believes the pickings are becoming slim in Churchill, and when a salesman, Marion McCoy from Apple Pie Inc., shows up telling them they have won a Winnebago, the Quills have a hearty last meal of Marion, and then decide on a road trip to see Shay. Before they can leave, the salesman's partner, Hal Blind, drops by looking for him, and the Quills ask him to stay for dinner. After dinner, Cassandra wonders if Blind suspected anything, and maybe they should have bashed him over the head. Adam and Helen are aghast. They are animals, are murderers. The next day they start their road trip, but Hal, suspicious, investigates the house and finds McCoy's team ring. Hal follows the Quills and further investigates the town of Churchill, where he finds that a number of people have gone missing over the last 18 years. Further investigation, especially on eating a pork pie sandwich on a plane, leads Blind to the inescapable conclusion that the Quills eat people. On the road, Cassandra picks up a lineman for the county, not kidding, who takes to the family like a baby to milk, but as they get closer to Vegas, Adam starts to wonder about Helen and Shay. A meeting with Shay seems to confirm his suspicions that Cassandra isn't his child, but Shay's shock at seeing them lead Shay's people, who know some people that kill some people, to take action. After all, it can't get out that the mayor of Las Vegas wants et people. Hal Blind is also confronting the Quills, but he comes off worse for wear when Adam slits his throat with a butter knife. It's not easy, but it doesn't matter over much as Shay's people's people arrive and gun everyone down except Cassandra, who escapes to the highway, where she is picked up by a student. As they speed off, she says no to a burger, stating that she's a vegetarian. Well, this, this was a choice that kind of came out of left field mm. when we were picking which Vertigo issues to do. I honestly thought you'd have picked an issue of The Invisibles. I almost did. And I wanted Kill Your Boyfriend. Yeah. Because I remember really, really liking Kill Your Boyfriend, but I haven't read it since it came out. And we don't have it. But we don't have it. We don't have Kill Your Boyfriend. Mm. Which I was quite... Because I was like, I must have let that off Scott then. Yes, I did. And he lent us this as well, which is when I first read it. Right, so if I ever see Kill Your Boyfriend in the 50p bin, I'll buy it for you. It's got a reprint now, anyway. Has it? In the deluxe edition. Yeah, I was going to say, it'll be a deluxe edition box set. I'll pick it up cheap somewhere. But this was just... Very, very blackly comic. Yeah. But in a very different way to the way Ennis is. Mm. This was a very deadpan black humour. Yeah. And the dialogue was very understated. But there were moments when I genuinely laughed out loud reading this. Mm. Because there are times when my humour runs to the jet black. (laughs) Yeah. Isn't there? Yes. Um, and can I just say, lovely listener, if you like any of these that we've, we've covered tonight, you really need to seek out a British comedy show called The League of Gentlemen. <laughs> Don't they? Yeah. If you've never watched The League of Gentlemen and you like black humour, you need to go and check that out. Yeah. Because it's absolutely fantastic. And this reminds me a lot of League of Gentlemen. Yes. Yeah. This whole normal family in a normal small town... And with that sinister undercurrent. That's normal to them. Yeah, but they think it's completely normal to do yeah. what they're doing. And it just reminded me of um, of Tubbs. Did Tubbs do good? <laughs> we did It just reminded me of that kind of, of humour. Which was... Um, I, I really liked it. I really liked reading it. And I love all the little subtle touches as he goes through it. Like his wife Helen's reaction every time he mentions Shay. Yeah. Like she'll spit out her food or start gnawing at her bottom lip or something. I thought that was pretty subtle until he 
point blank pointed it out. Yes, it was. I, I, I really liked this, but I don't really have a lot to say about it, unfortunately, because it's another one of them that, uh, as I was reading it, I was thoroughly engrossed in it. It's blackly comic. There are some genuinely funny lines of dialogue, assuming you like your humour blacker than coal. The Eaters is a marvellous treatise on hypocrisy and how people can spin what they do to be somehow righteous while committing the most heinous acts. On the one hand, it's asking how come it's okay to eat human flesh if it means survival, a la alive, versus the Quill's lifestyle choices, which are to eat humans, but they don't therefore consider themselves murderers. In fact, they have disdain for fast food joints and unhealthy eating. The story is frequently laugh-out-loud funny, if you're a little bit twisted. Which we must be, because I laugh numerous times at this. And it's cleverly put together with Hal Blind slowly putting it all together. Like a little detective mystery. Who I thought was more weirder than Quills. Yeah, and he becomes more and more unhinged. He starts taking baths in apple pie. Yeah, he's just... He's just very, very strange. Because, you know, like you say, he's bathing in apple pie, so how sane is he? Yeah. To begin with. And Shay Chesterton is a motivating presence for the whole story, but he's not really in it, is he? No. Until two-thirds of the way through, and he doesn't get his comeuppance in any way. Hmm. He literally gets away with murder. I don't know whether that's Millican commenting on politics. Yeah. But it could be. I don't know. The ending is moderately uplifting, though, as Cassandra changes both her taste in men... And her diet. Which they foreshadowed earlier. Which they did foreshadow earlier on, yeah. What did you think of this? I, I really liked it, but I, my only problem with it really is that the ending is too fast. The ending, it suddenly turns into a Quentin Tarantino film. Yeah. At the end, where it just turns into a shootout. And everyone gets shot dead and then she buggers off. Yeah. And you hear doom, 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 doom from True Romance, which yeah. was also from Badlands. And then that's just it. Everyone's dead. Her entire family's dead. But it just ends there. Yeah. There are no guys chasing her down. Like she just escaped from or anything. No. And we we get that Shea Chesterton is re-elected. So yeah. he got away with this. I mean, it's 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 possible that they may think she's dead as well. They may just assume they've killed her. Well, no, because they say she ran off. Yeah. All right. Yeah, they do, don't they? So okay, fair enough. But I really, I was quite pleasantly surprised by how much I enjoyed this again. I really remember liking it. Yeah. But remembering liking it and then reading it again is, is sometimes a different thing, isn't it? Because mm. this is the only genuine issue we've got. The Preacher one was a bookshelf edition, so there's no ads. Uh, Vertigo adverts may be interested to cover, because they're probably not of the hot comics yeah. variety. Uh, the, the inside cover, which is black and white ad, which never happens, <laughs> is um, a comical tragedy of Mr. Punch by Neil Gaiman and Dave McKean. A 96-page proper graphic novel, uh, which I've never read. I've never read Mr. Punch. Have you read that? No. Uh, I think that's the only one we've not got. Right, the only Neil Gaiman thing we've not got. All right, fair enough. Halloween, The Curse of Mike Myers came out. Stiff Little Fingers released... Oh, no, it wasn't Stiff Little Fingers, was it? It was the Bloodhound Gang yeah. uh, album, Use Your Fingers, apparently. Strange Days came out, which I remember quite liking. Um, Goo Goo Dolls and Pretty and Twisted released albums, so you can see instantly yeah. that Vertigo is aiming at a completely different audience. I, I, I love Vertigo adverts just because of the hard rock. The hard rock albums. Yeah. yeah, the X Files series one trading cards and Vampire the Eternal Struggle trading cards. You don't get any of these ads in a regular book. Changeling, I don't know what that was. But it looks pretty Vertigo. It, it looks very goth. 
second half of the book has no adverts whatsoever till you get to the on the ledge column which uh, Dave McKean and Neil Gaiman have wrote talking about yeah it's plugging Mr Punch into what did Vertigo have out in September 95 the newspaper yeah Shearchester and re-elected yeah I mentioned that September 95 when you were born yeah coming out was Vertigo Voices the Eaters obviously Tank Girl Apocalypse Mr. Punch Trade Paperback, Millennium Fever, The Books of Magic, The Invisibles, Goddess. Oh, we read that, didn't we? We've got Goddess. The Sandman Issue 72, so it's nearing the end. Sandman Mystery Theatre, Shade the Changing Man, Chiroscuro, The Private Life of Leonardo da Vinci, Hellblazer, Swamp Thing, Animal Man, Egypt. I read that. I read Egypt. Preacher. Oh, Preacher was only up to number eight mm. at this point. The Horrorist. Which is good. Have we got that? Digitally. All oh, right. Delano, Returning to Hellblazer. Oh, right, okay. Industrial Gothic, Sandman the Doll's House, and Batman Man Bat, which I hated. Did you? Hated Batman Man Bat. Was that the Legends of the Dark Knight one? No, no, it's a Vertigo boot by Jamie Delano. Oh, right. Painted by John Bolton. Oh, well, it's a DC book of no, sorry, it's not a Vertigo boot. I hated it. It's basically Jamie Delano taking the piss for three issues. Oh, okay. I'm glad I got him for 50p and didn't pay full price for him. But on the last page, Searching for Life in Outer Space, we never imagined the consequences of finding it. Space... Above and Beyond, which I used to love, didn't I? Yeah. I really liked Space Above and Beyond. Sadly, only lasted one season. And that about wraps it up for our look at Vertigo in the 1990s. Do you know, I thoroughly enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. Nice little change of pace from um, what we have been doing and what we will be doing next time on an all-new episode of Hey Kids Comics when we go as far away from Vertigo as it is possible to get for the dawn of Image. Bringing it all full circle, because I like doing that, don't I? Yeah. I like circuitous, circadian rhythms. Uh, Spawn, number one. Hey. Youngblood, number one. And Wildcats, number one. Oh, (laughs) we spoil you. We really, really do. We hope you enjoyed that. I know I did. Thoroughly enjoyed that. Really, really, really. Three really good books, so check them out. With the writers in the prime as well. Yeah. Um, And next week, from the sublime to the ridiculous, (laughs) we'll be closing out our look at the 90s with uh, a look at those aforementioned three titles. I know Michael can barely contain his euphoria. Yeah. (laughs) We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Goodbye. When you were before Look you in the eye You're just like an angel Your skin makes me cry You float like a feather In a beautiful world I wish I was special So fucking special But I'm a creep is a the devil will find one.
of Idle Hands to Do Production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. And no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show is not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, your one-stop shop for a plethora of truly fine shows. And we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. What the hell am I doing here? I don't The extended narrative of Preacher ran for 66 issues and presented Rita's... Rita's? Who's Rita? (laughs) Rita? Did you enjoy Preacher? Yes, I did.